But I just want to cover three verses this morning in Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, beginning in verse 30 through 33. I'll read to you out of the New American Standard 2020. It says, Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea, that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and relax in your company. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. So, Father, we ask that you would speak to our hearts this morning as we we look into your word. Lord, that you would encourage us, that you would would, uh, spur us on to good works, that you would instruct us in righteousness' sake, And so we pray that your spirit would be here to speak to us. And and Lord, that you would give us ears to hear that which you would say to each of us. So fill us again, Lord, that we may receive from you. And I ask that you would fill me, that you may speak through me this morning. So we pray that, Lord, again, that you would be glorified in that which we do uh, as we speak, as even in the inward portions of our heart. Because your word tells us that you desire truth in the inward parts. So have your way, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. So finishing up this this particular chapter here, uh, Paul is is just really a few things I want to touch on this morning. And there's a lot here that, again, I'm going to leave some of it uncovered. but he, he urges the church in Rome by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, it says, to strive together, uh, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. So th- this word, that's tra- there, there's one word that's translated from the Greek into the English that's translated that, uh, that you strive together. Four words. It takes four words to uh, make one word in the Greek in this particular sense. So there's talk about a million or a million dollar word, right? So, um, and it, it's the word. See if I can pronounce it without butchering it. It's the the word is synagogizome. Uh, Try to say that five times, and maybe I can hardly say it once. Synagogizome. So, but it, it's based on the synagogue. It's is rooted in that word in in uh, in Greek that that we get for the synagogue. But it literally, literally means to fight along with. It means to fight along with. It's the only time this word is used in the Old Test or the New Testament, um, where Paul is saying, "I want you to come alongside and fight with me," because he's going to Jerusalem. He's writing this in Corinth. He's about to start his trip. The book of Acts gives us some detail about this trip. He goes, he's heading for, uh, for uh, Jerusalem, and he stops in a town called Miletus, and he meets with the Ephesian elders. It's in the book of Acts, chapter 20, verses 22 through 33. We won't take the time to turn there. But he meets with the Ephesian elders, and, and he says that, that I, I'm being told uh, by the Holy Spirit that, 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 that perils uh, and difficulties lie ahead. And if you read further on in the book of Acts, 
you'll, you'll find that when he gets to Jerusalem, they receive the gift uh, that was given them. And this was a collection that was taken up by some of the churches uh, in Macedonia and in Achaia. And um, they received the gift because they were, they were going broke. And, and he's in the temple, and he starts to preach, and he ends up getting arrested. And he causes such a ruckus because the Jews can get very emotional, right? They can get very emotional, and he causes such a ruckus that, that the Romans that were stationed, the Roman soldiers that were stationed at the Jewish temple, they come and get him because the crowd's about to kill him. And it starts this very long legal ordeal for Paul uh, where he eventually is brought to Rome and eventually is not told us in the book of Acts. The story in the book of Acts ends before this, but eventually he does go before Caesar. Uh, it's believed that it was Nero, and Nero was only half insane at that time and actually let him go. That's at least that's some, of the, some of the beliefs behind this, and that Paul actually had an opportunity to go to Spain, somehow was either came back or whatever, was rearrested, was brought back before Nero, who was totally insane at this point, uh, but responsible for what he did, by the way. And, and then Paul is put to death as he writes his final prison letters uh, in first and then particularly the second Timothy that he wrote to Timothy. And, um, but he, he knew that he's being told by the Holy Spirit, and there's a lot of debate about this, that he was being told by the Holy Spirit that, that he was going to encounter some serious trials, some serious difficulties, which was actually prophesied to him by Ananias right after he got saved in the city of Damascus. When Ananias was the one, if you remember, when Paul got saved, what happened to him? He, got, he was blinded, which I find fascinating. Because we, we use the analogy, the metaphor of, you know, I got saved and now I see. Paul got saved and he was blinded. And the Holy Spirit laid it upon Ananias to go and to lay hands on Paul that he would receive the Holy Spirit and that the scales would fall from his eyes. And it was revealed to him how much he must suffer for Christ's namesake. And, uh, and there's a lot of debate about whether Paul should have gone to, to Rome. I, I think I think he was. I think he stayed in God's will. Personally, I think he stayed in God's will. Excuse me. There was a lot of debate that whether Paul should have gone to Jerusalem. All right, we back. Okay, I'm back. Okay, and I think he was in God's will. I think he was doing what he was uh, led by the Spirit to do. And um, sometimes the leading in the Spirit is not always going to be a successful venture. Sometimes you're going to suffer persecution. Jesus said to us that if they persecuted him, they would persecute whom? Us. More specifically, you or us, right? He's speaking to the church. And, and so uh, Paul is, he, he's sensing this, I believe, and he's looking for a team, you might say. He's putting a team together. Now, did the Romans go to Jerusalem with him? No, they didn't. But what did they do for him in his trip to Jerusalem? 
I believe they answered this request and they earnestly prayed for him. They struggled with him. They fought alongside of him in, in prayer. And that might have been the reason why the Jews were not able to kill him in, in Jerusalem. Because they also, once the Romans got a hold of him, they wanted him back and they wanted to judge him according to their own law which they had completely uh, twisted, conflated in such a way that it really wasn't God's law anymore. They taught as, as the law of God, the precepts of men, Jesus said. And they wanted, they wanted to try and for blasphemy and stone him is what they wanted to do. And um, the Lord protected him. The Lord gave him an opportunity. If you read the last part of the book of Acts, uh, the, the Lord gave him, it was a very difficult time. He was shipwrecked. And yet the Lord gave him opportunity to not only to, to share the gospel, but to minister to the people on board the ship and to preserve the people on board the ship, although the ship itself was lost. And, and so he, he's saying that you would strive together that you would fight alongside with him. And it, it was, I, I thought about this as really, this really talks about this, this idea of, of the agony of prayer. Do you guys understand what I'm talking about when I refer to the agony of prayer? Or this idea of wrestling with God. It, we, we read about it in Genesis chapter 32, verses 22 through 32, where Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord at the river Jabbok all night long. And remember, he, the, the, the dawn was starting to come, and, 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 and uh, he wrestled with the angel of the Lord and said, I'm not going to let you go until what? Until you bless me. I'm not going to let you go until you, till you bless me. Now, I know that there have been guys that, that they've, they've tried some of this stuff, and I think in a very foolish way. And I think it was, I think if my, my memory is correct, a guy named Oral Roberts went up in the tower, and he wasn't going to come back and down from the tower until God gave him X amount of money, which to me was not, this was not the river Jabbok, this was foolishness. That's just my opinion. Your mileage may vary, but nonetheless... But, but um, and finally, some millionaire stepped up just to get him to come down to the tower, you know, and, uh, and gave the money. But this is at those times where we wrestle with God, if you will, because we are in a desperate place where we need a desperate breakthrough by the power of the Holy Spirit to intervene in our life. Do you remember the story of Jacob? Again, we're not going to turn to it this morning, and right now I'm shooting off the cuff because this just kind of came to me. But do you remember the story of Jacob, why he was wrestling with the angel of the Lord at the river Jabbok? Because he had just uh, left Laban, his father-in-law, and it was a very uneasy truce that he had with Laban because Laban, his father-in-law, did not want to let him go. He was also told that his brother Esau was coming to meet him with 400 men. The last time he had seen his brother Esau 
is when he had, he had stolen the birthright from Esau when his mother and him deceived his father, uh, Isaac, and uh, he not only purchased the birthright earlier from his brother Esau, Esau being the oldest, but then he deceived Isaac and he got the birthright as well, which was the blessing. And um, Esau said, the next time I see you, I'm going to kill you. He was that angry. And now he's coming to meet him with 400 men. He can't go back to Laban. He can't go forward because Esau's going to kill him. And so he, this is the proverbial rock in a hard spot. So he prays all night long. He sends the entire family across the river Jabbok, and he's there all by himself, and he wrestles with the angel of the Lord all night long. And it's at that time, this to me this fascinates me, because it's at that time that Jacob gets a change of name. His name was Jacob, which means heel catcher or trickster. And when he asked the angel of the Lord to bless him, which I believe is a pre-incarnate appearing of Jesus Christ, when he asked the angel of the Lord to bless him, he said, you're no longer Jacob, but now your name is Israel, which means governed by God. In biblical times, a name actually meant something. And when you had a name change in the Bible, you see it with Abram, who became Abraham. You see it with Jacob, who became uh, Israel. And when you have a name change in the Bible, often it is accompanied by a change of the character of the person. Where Jacob was the trickster, he was the heel catcher, he was the conniver, he was the one, he, and he was very successful in raising sheep. And he was a self-made man. But he got to the place in his life where he could not go back to Laban, he could not go forward to meet Esau, and he finally found himself dependent upon the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He finally found himself dependent upon God, and when he surrendered, the scripture tells us, when he surrendered, then he found victory. When he got the name change, where he was no longer the trickster, but he was now governed by God, then God delivered him. And then God continued to use him. And God did a work through him. And he's in the messianic line. He was part of the covenant that God made with Abraham. And, and I think often it is that part of prayer is that we have to strive because with God, and sometimes we have to wrestle with God because there are times that we really want God to fix things, but we really already believe in our own hearts that, God, I want you to fix it, and this is how I want it done. 
And of course we do. And then we can throw in the Christianese. God, this is how I want it done because I'm filled with the Spirit. And I've heard the Spirit. And this is what I want. And sometimes we don't really understand our own depravity. And therefore we have not because we ask not or we ask amiss that we might consume it upon our own desire. James tells us. And what I found that there are times in prayer that I just have to wrestle the mic out of me. Does that make sense? I won't say I have to wrestle the, I'm not going to use any of your names. I don't have to wrestle the Bob out of me. Let's say Bob's not here, right? We don't have a Bob anyway. I have to wrestle the mic out of me. particularly when we have conflicts with other individuals. And what am I to do? And how am I to respond? Well, God, let me tell you what I'm supposed to do. Let me tell you how I'm supposed to respond. And I'm only going to give you a couple scriptures to tell you how it's done. And, and, and sometimes that might be true, but sometimes that's just your pride that's coming out. How are we to live as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ in this day and age in 2022? We have been placed here for such a time as this. Whether we want to be here or not. The landscape, the political landscape, the cultural landscape, it is what it is. How are we to engage? How are we to respond? How are we to be the city on the hill? How are we be, be the light that shines in the darkness that's getting darker? And I think it really, it begins with, begins with, it continues with, and it ends with prayer. That we really pray ourselves through these things because sometimes I think difficulty in life is really God's attempt of shortening the leash on us. You know what I mean by the leash, don't you? And sometimes I think God gives us a very long leash and we have a lot, we have a lot of, uh, of, of area to roam. I, I had a dog once when he had a lot of area to roam. He didn't always do real well, so I'd have to shorten the leash and, leash and bring him in closer and, and to, to, to kind of get him to do what I wanted him to do. It, and I think, I think sometimes these trials and these difficulties and these hard times are, are, are really God's way of calling us back in closer. It's really God's invitation, as, as weird as that might sound. Are we going to yell and scream at our television sets? Rant and rave on Facebook? Maybe you ought to start with yelling and screaming at God, and I mean that literally. 
called a lament. It's very biblical. It's all throughout the Psalms. Maybe we should complain to God. It's biblical. It's in the Psalms. I mean, he's the one who can do something about this, isn't he? My television set isn't going to do a thing for us. In fact, I've found the best thing I can do is usually find the remote and hit that off button. You know, from time to time, and it hasn't been so much lately. Uh, there was a time I, I, I felt like I was the complaint department. You know, that really isn't my calling. You know, I can't do a whole lot. And, and to, to be in the fight with each other. You don't like the way things are? Start praying about them. You don't like the slide, of the, the moral decline in this country? Start praying about it. Ask God to intercede. Anybody can complain. But I think sometimes it is, and I've talked about this before, is that sometimes when we, we complain, we, we, it becomes a catharsis. We have that emotional release, and we feel better temporarily, but then we short-circuit God's, God's work on our lives when he wants to use the uncomfortableness of our lives to form us more into his image. So if you don't complain to God, maybe you ought to start. Seriously, I do. And there are times when I'm complaining to God, it's like later on I go back and it's like, oh, I'm sure, I'm, I sure hope you weren't recording this. But at least I'm bringing it to the one who can actually make a difference. We don't like what's going on in our state. We don't like what's going on in our country. Let's pray about it. Let's fight together in prayer. Let's ask God to do a work. But the reality is, when you engage in that type of prayer, what I have found out is that usually the first person that God wants to work on is you. And I say that recognizing that I'm speaking to godly people. Not a bunch of Sinners, okay? Even though we all are a bunch of sinners. But the reality is, as godly as you and I might be, there's always, there's always that, that not only that, that place that we can grow deeper in our relationship with the Lord, but there's always still that, that idea of maintenance. Where, where, where uh, we have to maintain what we've attained. We have to be good stewards of what we've attained because we can squander what we have attained in our walk with Christ and no longer be good stewards and, and we fall backwards from that because we're not maintaining it. That's why manna was only good for how long? One day with the exception of, of the day before the Sabbath. They were to, it was the last two days. 
Man is only, the, the word of God is a representation of the word of God. Man is a representation of, of the bread of life, Jesus Christ, only good for one day. I have to constantly go back. I have to constantly get refueled. I have to constantly get fed. I have to constantly get my, 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 my sights adjusted, my glasses adjusted, my ability to see things according to the spirit of God rather than according to what men want to tell me what to see and what to believe and, and, and how to interpret things. See, if we truly endeavor to live a life like that, then God will make a difference in our lives. And I think it will spread outward. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1 through 3, I'll read it to you. It says, finally, brothers, pray for us. Paul asking again, pray for us that the word of God may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. In other words, that the furtherance of the word of God, the furtherance of the gospel would, would continue to speed ahead and that it would be honored and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. See, he understood, he understood the times. Really not much different than today. We, we talk about, oh, it just can't be, it can't get much worse. It, can't, it can get much worse. It can get much worse. That we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith. We may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith. Top executives in the Southern Baptist Convention, they lost it somewhere. They lost their faith somewhere. And they need to go and find it and, 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 and set aside what it is they're doing and allow someone else who is really raised up by the Spirit of God to do the work of God. It says, the Lord is faithful, verse 3. And he will establish you and guard you against the evil one. He will establish you and he will guard you against the evil one. But, but he, he doesn't do it without our participation. Now, he does a lot of things, I believe, for us without our participation. And I am so glad that God intercedes on my behalf, not because of me, but in spite of me. And in spite of some of you, right? But nonetheless, if, if we really want to be established and that, that the Lord guards us from the evil one and we don't get sucked into the vortex, well, I'm really tempted to go off on this one, but I'm going to refrain. If we don't get sucked into the vortex of the rhetoric, He'll guard us from the evil one because he's our priority. He's our priority. And he's called us first and foremost as kingdom people to pray that the kingdom would come, that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. I was with a group of pastors Top last week off, 
was with a group of pastors, and primarily most of the stuff that came out of their mouth was political. It made me sick. Because I'm not seeing what I just read to you out of Second Thessalonians chapter 3 in their lives. I'm not seeing what I read to you in Romans chapter 15 in their lives. This idea of fighting together, this idea of persistence in prayer, that, uh, that Paul knew that he needed the prayers of the saints um, to God for him, that he would be rescued from those who are disobedient. Verse 31 in uh, Romans 15, rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea. So it's the same concept that he talked about to the uh, Thessalonians. He's saying this here to the Romans. He's praying that he would be delivered. And that his service, the ministry, the, the offering that he brought to Jerusalem would be proved to be acceptable to the saints. Same word that we looked at earlier when it, 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 it talked about acceptable to God in this chapter. Now, we, it, I find this fascinating. He uses the same word uh, earlier we talked about. I'm trying to find it here in my Bible. It's a different translation probably, but it's the same Greek word where, 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 the, where Paul was saying that that the work of the ministry to the Gentiles would be an acceptable sacrifice to God. Remember that? Now he's saying that the service, the ministry, the giving from the other churches to the Jerusalem uh, saints would be acceptable to them. I find that fascinating that he uses the same word. It's the same concept. And, and in that which we do, we desire for it to be acceptable. We desire it to have some type of value. We desire for it to be of some type of blessing to people. And, and Paul was steadfast, and that was his heart because his desire was to knit together the Jewish churches and the Gentile churches so that they would, they would really experience the unity that they really are, that they really have been called to be. And then he says, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and relax in your company. I thought the New American Standard really worded that rather funny. Um, the New King James says that, that we may be refreshed together. That's what it says in the New King James. Um, I'm looking at the word. I don't know if I can pronounce it. It's one of those really long Greek words. Uh, but it, it, it really talks about relaxing. He's fought the fight. He's endured what it is that he expects to endure. He's getting words of knowledge about what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem. He doesn't know how it's going to fully play out. We read about it some in the book of Acts. He's looking for a time of R&R, right? I think that's important to understand because sometimes we just need to take a break from the war. Sometimes we just need to take a break from the war. Turn the TV off. Kill you. I, I'm going I'm to find one of those stickers again. Back at the, It used to be back in the 70s and 80s. Kill your television. I'm going to find as many of them as I can and stick them all over. You know. Anyway, but, but because sometimes that's just depressing. And sometimes you just need to unplug. Sometimes you just need to sit quiet 
Some of my prayer time, and I try to do this often, some of my prayer time is just simply sitting quiet before God. Because I believe that prayer in and of itself is a response to God. God has already spoken, has he not? God has already spoken. And that prayer is simply a, a really a response to that which he's already said. And sometimes we just need to sit and we need to listen and we need to relax and we need to chill out. And we need to turn it off for a while. And that's what he was hoping to do when he would finally get to Rome. And then he says, now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. He's done. And then he writes another chapter. Why? I don't know. Okay? I don't know. Other than, I'll give you a, a guess. I kind of already implied it. I think the passage, the little, these three verses imply it. After you've done the fighting alongside, and you have that time of peace, that time of rest, that time of relaxation, or even in the midst of the battle, he's calling on the God of peace to be with you all. He's the God of peace because he is the one who provides the peace that passes all understanding according to the book of Philippians. I, and I love this title uh, uh, that, that Paul gives uh, of God, because, and he uses it in other places as well. And we'll see it again in, in the next chapter, uh, Romans 16. He, he uses it in 2 Corinthians 13, Philippians chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians 5.23. I know I'm speaking, but nobody's writing anyway, so that's good. And in the book of Hebrews chapter 13. So it, it's a common title for God. I think he also understands that when you jump into the fight, you're going to get some fight in return. And you're going to need the presence of the God of peace to be with all of you when you engage in the warfare of prayer. And what I've found, I don't, this is probably obvious to you, this was like a new thing to me. I thought, it's very possible that we experience different aspects of spiritual warfare that may have absolutely nothing to do with what we're praying about. And some of you are shaking your head like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'm like, oh, that's really, I don't know why I never thought of that before. But, you know, but it, because, because the forces of darkness come at you from any and all sides. And often it's not a frontal assault. And, and as you are fighting the fight, you're going to need the presence of the God of peace to be with you. Because the forces of darkness do not retreat easily. But they do bow at the name of Jesus. Amen. Prayer can be, not always, depending on the type of prayer. And there's many aspects of prayer. And I took a bunch of notes on prayer and then I dumped them because we're almost out of time anyway. But, but, but prayer can be a form of spiritual warfare. 
Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, it says to us, be anxious for nothing. Don't be uptight about stuff. Specifically, do not get all spun out about things you can't change anyway. But in everything, prayer, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, verse 7, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. If you're bringing everything to God in prayer, and you are giving him thanks. Do you ever thank him for your trials? How about I'll be honest and say I kind of try to sometimes. Most of the time, I'm just too angry. To be honest with you. Why is this happening? You know, and, and, and you know, if I'm really... If I really believe that there's nothing like a good trial to get your attention from God, then I should be thankful. Because if anything else, the trial has turned me in the direction that I need to look. I just wish it was a whole lot easier than that, right? And even thinking about it now, I'm getting irritated. But I'm just like, okay, it's the way it is, though. It's the way that it is. How do we get peace from God? He's taking us really back to Romans chapter 5, verse 1, where it says, therefore, having been justified by faith, Romans 5, verse 1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But I think part of that, and of course, that was because of the work that Jesus did on the cross, Right? But not only was it the work that Jesus did on the cross, which in it and of itself is complete, but him going into a holy of holies not made with hands, the book of Hebrews tells us, entering into the holy place and offering up his own blood once and for all for the sacrifice of sin. And, and the book of Hebrews has a lot to say about that. In, in Hebrews 6, and Hebrews 6, verses 19 and 20. If you want to turn there, I'll slow down a bit if you want to look at it. I'm going to read it to you out of the English Standard Version because I think it reads a little bit better. And, and I, I, I think it, 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 it's just helpful because Hebrews is one of those really, to me, one of those really difficult um, um, books. But in Hebrews chapter 6, Verse 19 and 20. And it's talking about how God made the covenant. Uh, and God who made the covenant, and because he, there was none greater than himself, he could swear by no one greater than himself, so he swears by himself. So he, he's that serious about this covenant that he makes with Abraham that he's willing to even put himself on the line. And it even tells us how God, who cannot lie, verse 18, 
who, uh, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. That we might have strong encouragement as we hold fast to the hope that is set before us. It says in verse 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. I just realized that one of the songs that I picked this morning, we sang about this. I didn't realize it until we were singing it. Um, but it says, we, we have this as a sure, bless you, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Now, particularly in those days, the anchor for uh, 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 sailors was very important. And if they didn't have a good anchor, they could get in a lot of trouble really fast. And so it was this, this form of stability. It was this form of steadfastness. It was this means of staying put, staying in the right place where you're supposed to leave the boat. And that apply that to your own soul, the anchor of a soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. It's referring to the Holy of Holies. The holy place that in the, the temple of God, you had the holy place where the priest would come and it would minister and it would have, it, it had the showbread and it had the, the candelabra with, with the, uh, the lights. And then you had this thick curtain uh, that was at the end of the holy place. And uh, behind that curtain was what was called the Holy of Holies, which is where the Ark of the Covenant dwelt. And that was the place where God would meet with his people, it tells us in the Old Testament. And it says that the hope that we have, it says the hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Well, who entered into the inner place behind the curtain? The high priest did. And what this tells us is this is where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus has become our high priest. He has entered into the holy place. He has gone into that inner sanctuary. He has gone behind the curtain for us on our behalf. And he is our forerunner. Isn't that weird? When I th read the word forerunner in the Bible, who do you think of? I think of John the Baptist, right? He was what? He was the forerunner. And Hebrews tells us that Jesus is our forerunner. Well, the forerunner is the lesser. Think of that for a second. He's our high priest, but he's described as the lesser. What an incredible humility. But he is the high priest who goes into the Holy of Holies, which is where the Ark of the Covenant was. And on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant was known as the, 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 uh, the mercy seat. And it was where the mercy seat was, where God said, I will dwell above the mercy seat. And this is where I will meet with, with people. Jesus goes in to the presence of God 
as our forerunner. So one day, you and I will go into the presence of God because of our high priest, Jesus Christ, who has gone before us and he has given us this incredible hope that we have of our souls that we can bank on that, we can hold on to that. That becomes our anchor and that becomes our strength. And, and, and whatever it is that they throw at us, whatever it is that they do next, whatever other kind of nonsense they, they, they try to get everyone else to believe, we have a hope that cannot be taken from us. Thank you. And that's why we fight in prayer alongside of the one who goes and brings the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, the peace of God can be with each and every one of us. Amen.